Today we are continuing our series entitled Answering Our Culture. And we've talked about a number of different subjects. I'm not going to do much review on that this morning. Uh, but today, our message today, we're going to do our best to try to answer the question, if God is so good, why is there so much evil? This is a major objection. We've been through this series. We've been trying to answer objections that people have to Christianity or in this case, even the existence of God. And, and there are many people who say, well, if God is so good, then why is there so much evil? And, and the truth is, we know that there's, there's no question that evil exists and that it is rampant in our society today. Anyone who would deny that is either living alone in a cave somewhere or they're just frankly delusional. And yet, even with all the evil that's in the world, Christians would say that God is good and God is all powerful. So the question many people ask is why doesn't God do something about the evil? Why does, could it be that, that God is not really all that good? Or could it, maybe it's in, it's a case of God not being as powerful as we would like to believe he is. Maybe we would, we would have to agree with Rabbi Harold Kushner, who, who wrote the book, When Bad Things Happen to Good People, when he said that God isn't all powerful after all, that he would like to help, but he's just not capable of solving all the problems in the world. So, so what's the answer? Is God capable of destroying evil? And if so, then why doesn't he do it? Why should I believe in a God who allows children to be molested and murdered? Why should I believe in a God who allows bloody warfare to be waged in his name? Why should I believe in a God when innocent people are made to suffer and he doesn't do anything to stop it? Why should I believe in a God when there is a famine and there is drought that causes young children to die when all they needed was some rain for the crops? Why should I believe in a God who allows terrorists to strap bombs to themselves and take out innocent civilians or to hijack airplanes and fly them into buildings, killing thousands of people at a time? Why does God allow these things? Now, these are tough questions. And, 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 but, and I don't pretend to be able to understand everything. So, what I'm going to do today is try to give you some answers that I hope will at least give us a start on unraveling this deep ministry. And, and, and the foundation I want to begin with to understanding why there is evil in the world begins with this very truth. The very foundation of it is that we can be confident that God is all powerful and that he is perfectly good. Now, here's there's a line of reasoning that is popular among those that are atheists or, or skeptics. And it goes something like this. They say, an all-powerful God could destroy evil. A good God would destroy evil. Evil is not destroyed. Therefore, God cannot possibly be good and all-powerful uh, as, as God. So now on the surface, that sounds logical and it makes sense to a lot of people and it's a stumbling block for a lot of people. It makes sense and it sounds good until we realize that this argument actually points to the existence of God. This objection of, to Christianity is completely based on a sense of fair play and a sense of justice. People, we believe in general as human beings, ought not to suffer or to be excluded or to die of hunger or to suffer oppression. However, when, when you live without, with a viewpoint of life, a worldview that excludes God, then you, you embrace something like evolution. Well, the evolutionary principle of natural selection depends on death and destruction and violence of the strong against the weak. These things are all in the natural world would be considered perfectly natural. So the question is then, on what basis does the atheist judge the natural world to be horribly wrong, unfair, and unjust? That's the question. Now, I know that may seem a little cloudy, but I think it'll be, become a little more clear. C.S. Lewis, a great author, he described how he had originally rejected the idea of God because of the cruelty of life. And then he became to realize that evil was actually more problematic for his new atheism. In the end, he realized that the awareness of injustice and evil actually provided a better argument for God's existence than against it. In his book, Mere Christianity, which I, I, I recommend every Christian ought to read C.S. Lewis's book, Mere Christianity, even if you're not a Christian, it's a great book to read. 
But this is what he wrote. He said, my argument against God was that the universe seemed too, too cruel and unjust. But how, he asked, had I got this idea of just and unjust? A man does not call a line crooked unless he has some idea of a straight line. What was I comparing this universe with when I called it unjust? If there were no light, he wrote, if there were no light in the universe and therefore no creatures with eyes, we should never know it was dark. Dark would be a word without meaning. If you are sure that this natural world is unjust and it is filled with evil, then what you're doing is you're assuming the reality of some extra natural standard by which to make your judgment. You're saying there's something that I can measure the, the evil in this world against to say this is how it should be. So you're already providing a standard. And if you, if you, without God, that is just an arbitrary standard. It's a made up standard and you can't apply it to anybody else. I don't know if that makes sense to you or not, but if, if it's, if it's a standard that I made up with no basis outside of that, then I can't impose that standard on you. I'll give you a silly example. Suppose I set a standard that you cannot come to church unless you're wearing blue. Most of you are in good shape today. There's a lot of blue here today, but I see some red. I see some orange. I see some other issues, other problems. I see a little purple over here. And, and, uh, and uh, this is, you can, I don't know if you can tell on the camera, but this is, this is dark blue, so I'm still good. So I could make that standard. I can say, you cannot be part of the church. You cannot be a Christian uh, unless you're wearing blue. The problem is, that's just an arbitrary made-up standard, and I cannot force you, I cannot enforce my arbitrary standard on you. You see this? And so there, if, therefore, if there is no God, if there's no higher standard to judge morality and to say this is evil and this is unjust, then all you're doing is making up a standard and it is, it would be immoral for you to force that standard on anybody else. So that's the idea behind this. The, the philosopher Alvin Plantinga said it like this. Could there really be any such thing as horrifying wickedness if there were no God and we just evolved? I don't see how there can be such a thing only if there's a way that rational creatures are supposed to live, obliged to live. A secular way of looking at the world has no place for genuine moral obligation of any sort and thus no way to say there is such a thing as genuine and appalling wickedness. Accordingly, if you think there really is such a thing as horrifying wickedness and not just an illusion of some sort, then you have a powerful argument for the reality of God. The, the non-believer in God does not have a good basis for being outraged at injustice because that's the natural outgrowth of evolution. That's the natural outgrowth of the strong surviving and the weak not surviving. And the problem is that was the reason for objecting to God in the first place. So now also in this, now we're going to get to some other things that I think will be uh, more helpful, but this is all foundational. There's also tucked away within this argument, the assertion that evil and suffering are pointless. And, and if evil uh, appears pointless to me, then it must be pointless. But this reasoning is completely flawed. Just because you can't see or imagine a good reason why God might allow something to happen doesn't mean there can't be a good reason. The fallacy at the heart of this agreement has it's been illustrated by uh, the I mentioned him earlier, Alvin Plantiga. He Plantiga he illustrated with what's called the no seems illustration. And if you it, it, this is what he said, he said basically, if you look in your pup tent, everybody knows a pup tent's not very big, right? It's a very small pup tent. If you look in your pup tent for a Saint Bernard, and you don't see one, it is reasonable to assume that there is no Saint Bernard in your in your pup tent. Because the St. Bernard would pretty much take up the whole pup tent. So it'd be very easy to see because it's a big thing. However, if you look into your pup tent to see if there is a noceum. Anybody, everybody know what a noceum is, right? Uh, that's, I don't know what they're called in different parts of the country or not, but that's an extremely small insect with a bite that's all out of proportion to its size. you know. And they're so tiny 
that they, that you, they're very difficult to see. So they called no seams. And, and, and so if you, if you look into the pump tent, pup tent for a no seam and you don't see any, it is not reasonable to assume that there aren't any there. Because after all, you can't see them. And many assume that if there are good reasons for the existence of evil and there are good reasons for these bad things to happen, then they would be accessible to our minds more like St. Bernard's than Oseum's. But my question is, why should that be the case? You know, we recently on Wednesday night just finished a study on the life of Joseph. And if you want to ever, ever uh, begin to develop a theology of suffering, you need to, to study the life of Joseph because he suffered a great deal. He was hated by his brothers. Now, admittedly, he probably started off a little bit on the arrogant side. Maybe he had some issues there because, you know, he had these dreams that they were going to bow down to him. And what did he do? The first thing he went is to his brother. He goes to his brother and says, hey, I had a dream. And in this dream, you all are going to bow down to me. And, you know, in my household, my younger brother comes to me and says, hey, I had a dream. You're going to bow down to me. Guess who's going to bow down in that moment? It's not going to be me. Anyway, so he had this issue and, and so they hated him. And in their anger and the hatred toward him, they imprisoned him. They threw him into a pit and then they sold him into slavery and misery in Egypt. Now, listen, there is no doubt in my mind that Joseph prayed to God to help him escape that pit. But no help came and into slavery he went and he and he went into slavery, then was thrown into prison, falsely accused of rape. And even though he experienced years and years of bondage and misery, Joseph's character was refined and strengthened by his trials. And eventually he, he rose up to become the prime minister of Egypt and he saved thousands of lives and even saved his own families from starvation. If God had not allowed Joseph's years of suffering, he never would have been such a powerful agent for social justice and spiritual healing. He would never have been in Egypt in the first place. He would never have been in, in a position to rise to power and he would not have developed, developed the character to know how to handle the power that he, that he had been given. And so, and listen, many, many people I know, they look back on an illness or they look back on a time of suffering in their life and they recognize in hindsight, in retrospect, that it was an irreplaceable season of personal and spiritual growth for them. I've known people who have survived cancer or other life-threatening issues who looking back, they're, they're not grateful for the tragedy and the difficulty itself and they wouldn't want to ever go through it again. But they would not trade the insight and the character and the strength and the intimacy with God that they had found from walking through those times with Him. See, with time and perspective, most of us can begin to see good reasons for at least some of the tragedy and pain that occurs in life. My question is, why couldn't it be possible that from God's vantage point, that there are good reasons for all of them? So with that said, let's get to the crux of it. Why doesn't God destroy evil? If he is a good God and he is all powerful, why doesn't he do something about this? Why doesn't he destroy evil? Could it be that he's not really a good God? Well, the Bible speaks of the goodness of God. I want to read you some of the passages, Exodus 34, 6, but, but which by the way, we, we rely on the word of God. We, we covered in previous messages why we can trust the word of God, why we can trust the Bible. Therefore, we're going to re refer to it. But this is what the Bible says of God's goodness. Exodus 34, 6. He passed in front of Moses and said, I am the Lord. I am the Lord, the merciful and gracious God. I am slow to anger and rich in unfailing love and faithfulness. By the way, that's Old Testament. A lot of people say, oh, the God of the Old Testament is angry and judgmental. No, no, you can see here. He said, I am a God that is slow to anger. I'm rich in unfailing love and faithfulness. Psalm 31, 19, your goodness is so great. You have stored up great blessings for those who honor you. You have done so much for those who come to you for protection, blessing them before the watching world. Psalm 34, 8, Taste and see that the Lord is good. Oh, the joys of those who trust in Him. Psalm 86, 5. Oh, Lord, you are so good, so ready to forgive, so full of unfailing love for all who ask your aid. 
Psalm 145, 9. The Lord is good to everyone. He showers compassion on all his creation. Nahum 1, 7. The Lord is good. When trouble comes, he is a strong refuge. And he knows everyone who trusts in him. Lamentations 3.25. The Lord is wonderfully good to those who wait for him and seek him. And there are many, many other verses that we could go through. We could be here all day just reading verses about the goodness of God. In fact, the entire Bible is an outline of God's goodness in his dealings with man. After all, think of it like this. Why would God bother to tell us how we can please him? Why would God bother to tell us uh, how we can have a home in heaven if he wasn't being good beyond measure to those of us, those who don't deserve it? There's no question. God is good. All you have to do is take a small inventory of your life. Think about the reality you woke up this morning. Your heart is still beating. Your, your lungs are still breathing. You, 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 I can tell you here, nobody here has gone hungry recently. I, I can tell you, you can look at me and you see that that's the case. You're like, well, he can last for a while. He's good. And, and, and so we're all, God has been so good to us. We look at our family. We look at our loved ones. We look at those who are near to us and we realize that we are so blessed and we see that God is good. So it's not that he's not good. Then could it be that he's not all powerful? Well, the Bible also talks about the power of God. Job 4, 9, verses 4 through 10. For God is so wise and so mighty. Who has ever challenged him successfully? Without warning, he moves the mountains, overturning them in his anger. He shakes the earth from its place and its foundations tremble. If he commands it, the sun won't rise and the stars won't shine. He alone has spread out the heavens and marches on the waves of the sea. He made all the stars, the bear and Orion, the Pleiades and the constellations of the southern sky. He does great things too marvelous to understand. He performs countless miracles. First Chronicles 29, 11. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness, the power, the glory, the victory and the majesty Everything in the heavens and on earth is yours, O Lord, and this is your kingdom. We adore you as the one who is over all things. Jeremiah 10, 12, But the Lord made the earth by his power, and he preserves it by his wisdom. With his own understanding, he stretched out the heavens. Isaiah 40, 25 and 26, To whom will you compare me? Who is equal? asked the Holy One. Look up into the heavens, who created all the stars, he brings them out like an army, one after another, calling each by its name. Because of his great power and incomparable strength, not a single one is, me is missing. It is so clear from Scripture that the Bible ascribes all power to the creator of the universe. Now, with that said, did you know that there are some things that God cannot do? You say, wait, wait, wait a minute, Pastor Dave. Didn't you just say that God is all, pow all powerful? Yes, he is all powerful, but hang on. Let me list a few of the things God cannot do, and you're going to see where we're going with this. First of all, God cannot lie. He cannot lie. Matthew 20, or excuse me, Numbers 23, 19. God is not a man that he should lie. Hebrews 6, 18. It is impossible for God to lie. God, and here's another thing God cannot do. God cannot be tempted to sin. And he does not tempt people to sin. James 1.13, when tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. In other words, understand it like this. God cannot do anything that's outside of his character. He cannot violate who he is because then he disqualifies himself and he cannot be God. He's imperfect. If he, if he, if he uh, does anything outside of his character, let me, let me put it like this. The reason God cannot lie is because he is truth. You see, if you are truth, then everything you say is truth and you cannot lie. He cannot sin or he cannot tempt people to sin because he is pure and holy. 
because that's who he is. Therefore, being who he is means he cannot sin and he's not going to try to get anybody else to sin. And, you know, in the same way, he can't undo the past. He can't create a square triangle and he can't make what is false true. The truth is God is both good and he is all powerful and he can do anything that is consistent with his character. And yet, and yet, we still have evil. Why? Well, to answer that, we need to move on to the second part of this, and that is that we need to recognize the source of evil. Where did evil originate? Some people will say something like, well, if God created, created everything, then that means he must have created evil. And how could a good God create evil? Well, let me just say right up front, God did not create evil. He only allowed for the possibility of evil. Now, what do I mean by that? Because that sounds so out there. But let me explain it by reading the words of of Peter Kreft, an, an author of numerous books on philosophy and religion. This is what he wrote. He said, it is not logically possible to have free will and have no possibility of moral evil. In other words, once God chose to create human beings with free will, it was up to them rather than God as to whether there was sin or not. That's what free will will means. Built into the situation of God deciding to create human beings is the chance of evil and consequently the suffering that results. Here's the thing. God created human beings in His own image capable of having and sustaining a personal relationship with Him. But to really be in the image of God, human beings have to be capable of freely loving God and following His will without being forced or coerced. Let me, let me explain it like this. Because without free will, without the possibility of rejection, you, ha- you take away the possibility of love. I'll explain it like this. Suppose I came home from the office one day and I saw I walk in and I see Julie in the kitchen. She's maybe she's getting something ready for dinner. And I walk into the kitchen and I, and I look at her and I, I told Julie, uh, I look at her and I say, Julie, I love you. And then there's no response. And so I, I say it again, thinking maybe maybe she didn't hear me. So I'm a little louder. I said, Julie, I said, I love you. But there's no response. If I were then, and I wouldn't, do, I wouldn't dare even try this because she could probably take me out, but, but if I were to grab her then in response and, and, and push her up against the refrigerator and pin her there and look at her and say, I said, I love you. Do you have anything to say? And she meekly says, and this is such a fantasy, but she looked at me and she says, I love you too. Let me ask you this. When she said that, does it mean anything? No. It means nothing if if she's forced to say it. And for us to say, I love God, if we have no other choice, then it's meaningless. It doesn't, it, it has, bears, it, it means nothing to say, I love God, if I have, don't have the option to reject him as well. It, 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 and so, uh, now, now the other hand, if I came home and I saw Julie in the kitchen, and I walked in there and said, Julie, I love you. If she dropped what she was doing and turned around and said, oh, I'm so glad to see you. I've missed you today. I love you too. Now does that have meaning? Yeah, because she said it of her own free will. She said it because she wanted to. She was expressing something there. Creatures that are free to love God must also be free to hate or ignore Him. And when people act in ways outside of the will of God, then we know that great evil and suffering is the ultimate result. But the thing is, God is perfectly capable of destroying evil. And one day He will, but He's perfectly capable of doing so. But doing so right now at this moment would destroy our human freedom. Because we would no longer have a choice. So we could no longer love. See, the source of evil, 
Now, a lot of people say, well, okay, if it's not God, it must be the devil. But that's not true either. The source of evil is not the devil. It's our own, our own will. We choose evil. Evil's a lot like rust on metal. You know, rust is not something that just sort of happens on top of metal. It's, it's a reaction and that rust becomes part of the metal. It contaminates it. And evils like rust, uh, uh, evil like rust is part of something. It's part of our human freedom of choice. Evil contaminates our free will so that we choose evil over good. And as I said, the source of evil is not the devil, it's own free will. I'll let me show it to you in scripture, James 1, 13 through 15. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. We read that earlier. But then let's read on. But each one is tempted when by what? His own evil desire he is dragged away and enticed. It's not the devil that made you do it. He just used your own evil desires to tempt you. He said he is dragged away and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Listen, the problem is every one of us in this room has made that choice to use our free will to commit sin and rebel against God. Every one of us, not a person ever, ever who has ever lived outside of Jesus Christ Himself, has has gone through life without making that choice. Therefore, that evil is part of us because of our sinful natures, because of our own evil choices. And God will ultimately triumph over evil, but He will not destroy it while we inhabit it. it the, the thing is, for for God to destroy evil right now would require Him to destroy you and me. Well, I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit there. But let, let's let's review. God's all-powerful and He's perfectly good. No matter what we might think at the moment or no matter what the circumstances, the reason God doesn't destroy evil is because the source of evil is our own uh, human freedom of choice. And to destroy evil would mean destroying the very creatures God created in His image. So, So what do we do about evil? How can we cope with the tragedy and suffering that goes on in this world? The basic answer to coping with the suffering in our world is to reach out to the one who can actually do something about it. How do we reach out in faith to the one who can do something about it? First, let me give you two methods to avoid when trying to cope with suffering. And everybody, by the way, let's take a little informal poll. Anybody here ever experienced suffering in your life? Let me see your hand. Okay, I'm talking to the right crowd. So here are two things not to do to deal with it. Number one, Don't look at all the instances of pain and suffering in your life as some sort of cosmic conspiracy against you. Have you ever known somebody like that? Oh, everything is against me. God's out to get me. Everything, you know, they're paranoid and they think everything is against them. And, 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 and so you can't look at life and say, man, God must be out for me. He's, he's, he's like trying to draw blood for me or something because everything is going wrong. Uh, but you know, that, that's a whole different worldview. Actually, that's more similar to Hinduism. One of the basic premises of Hinduism it states that you suffer because of the wrongs you did in your last life. And, and so if you go to India, you'll find a group of people that's known as the untouchables. The untouchables. And I'm not talking about a group of detectives led by Elliot Ness. <laughs> uh, but these are people who are so wretched uh, because of their station in life that no one, except for Christians, no one will have anything to do with them. Even Gandhi, Gandhi, you know, we look at him and everybody puts him on a pedestal, but Gandhi himself didn't even, he, he didn't even want them to be involved in the government because they were considered the refuse of society. And Hindus, Hindus believe that if you help lessen some of the suffering that they're dealing with, then you're actually hurting them for the next life and they're going to have to go through it again because you help them because all they're doing is working out their bad karma in this life. And we as Christians don't believe in karma because we don't believe we get another life. We believe that, that, that uh, this is the life God gives us. But, but, the, but, but here's what Christianity teaches. This is what the Bible teaches us. When you begin to be tempted to think that somehow there's a cosmic conspiracy, that you're paying for sins and you're going through this or whatever, you need to remember this. And that is, the Bible says 
that God loves the fatherless and He loves the downtrodden. When you're going through stuff, when everything is falling apart, you need to remind yourself, God's not doing it to you, but He's there in the midst of it, and He's cradling you, and He's carrying you, and He's loving you with a deeper love than you can possibly even imagine. He's right there in the middle of it. And when you weep, Jesus weeps. God's not carrying out some sort of cosmic conspiracy against you. Second thing not to do. Don't react with cynicism and bitterness toward God and thereby reject His sovereignty. This is probably the more common out of all of them. We've all known people that when things went haywire in their life, they blamed God, got mad at Him, pushed Him away, rejected Him, walked away from Him. And in doing so, they walked away from the very one who could help them through it. It's so easy to get jaded in life when we face pain and suffering. And then hurt can lead to anger. You know, anger is the first response to, to, to pain. Did you know that? That's, that's the first response. If you meet somebody that's angry, they're just an angry person, you need to, instead of reacting to them with more anger, you need to realize that's probably because they're dealing with some very deep hurt that they've never let Jesus heal. Because... Hurting people hurt people. And it's easy to get jaded in all this and let it lead to anger, but then anger can lead to bitterness. You know, have you ever known a bitter old person? Well, that didn't just happen to them. That's somebody that was a bitter young person. It just grew in, 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 in extremities. Realize that God is not the cause of your suffering, but He is the one who can carry you through. You're suffering. So let me give you four things, four ways to reach out to God, the only one who can make a real and lasting difference. The number one, the first thing, most important, cry out to Him like David did. Cry out to Him. Psalm 10.1, David wrote, O Lord, why do you stand so far away? Why do you hide when I need you the most? Has you ever, have you ever felt like that? Psalm 13, 1 through 4. Oh Lord, how long will you forget me? Forever? How long will you look the other way? How long must I struggle with anguish in my soul, with sorrow in my heart every day? How long will my enemy have the upper hand? Turn and answer me, oh Lord my God. Restore the sparkle to my eyes or I will die. Don't let my enemies gloat saying, we have defeated him. Don't let them rejoice at my downfall. David cries out to God and he's asking some very tough questions, which by the way, can I tell you this? God is not afraid of your hard questions. In fact, he's already heard every one of them. You're not coming with a new question. You're not coming with a question where he's like, whoa, I never thought of that before. It's okay to ask God the hard questions as long as you're willing to accept the answer he gives you. But the book of Psalms, it records numerous instances where the writer is crying out to God about his suffering, about the injustices that he sees. In fact, there are almost as many psalms of lament as there are psalms of praise and thanksgiving, which is why, frankly, when I'm going through a hard time, and this is a great thing for you to do, when you're going through a time of suffering, when I'm going through a time of suffering or difficulty or pain, the Psalms is where I always go and I read through the Psalms because I find in David a man who can understand he's been through the same things, but I also hear his heart as he cries out to God and I find the comfort in those Psalms. And sometimes even in one Psalm itself, there's a great mix of sadness and praise right there in the same, same Psalm. We, we can, listen, we can allow ourselves to experience the emotional pain involved, and we can express it to God. Some people are saying, well, you can't be angry at God. Well, David was. Did God reject him? How many of you have ever had your children angry at you? Yeah, if you haven't, you're not doing something right. <laughs> can, I, can I get an amen? But when, you're, when your kids got angry with you and they expressed it, 
Did you reject him and say, that's it, out of my house? You're no longer my child. Yeah, Mary said we wanted to. But... No, you didn't, no. You, you didn't do that. You knew that the pain would subside. You knew that, you, that they'd get past it. You knew that one day, one day, maybe not till they're you know, 45 years old, but one day they'll understand why you did what you did. And when we're angry with God, it's okay to say, God, I'm just, you know, I don't get this. Why did you let this happen? I'm just, I'm not happy about this. I'm angry. God's not going to say, okay, that's it. Out of the family. I'm done with you. No, he's going to do what you do with your kids. He's going to wrap his arms around you. He's going to say, I know you don't understand it. I know you don't get it right now. One day you will. Maybe not even in this lifetime, but one day you'll get it. One day you'll understand. So you can express that to God. And God encourages us to pour out our hearts to Him. And when we do that, we can rest assured that He hears us and He understands us. God knows what it's like to experience grief and suffering. And He knows what it's like to, to suffer the loss of relationships that are dear to Him. He walked through that. Jesus walked through those things Himself he knows what it's like to be betrayed, to be stabbed in the back. He knows what it's like to lose a loved one. He knows what it's like to, to, to have a loved one murdered at the hands of, of evil men. David knew. He knew that he could question God. But he also knew that God ultimately knows what is best. Look at how he finishes Psalm 13. We read the first part. Read verses 5 and 6. Because he asked all those questions you know, are you going to forget me forever? Are you going to let my enemies win? What's going on here? But then he says, but I trust in your unfailing love. I will rejoice. That's a, that's a statement of, of, of your free will. I will rejoice because you have rescued me. I will sing. Again, an act of the will. I will sing to the Lord because he is good to me. So it's okay to express all those things and to say, God, I don't like this. This is painful. This hurts. But then in the middle of all that, you say, but God, I know that you are at work. I know that you're in control. I know that you have unfailing love toward me and my family. I, and so, God, I choose to rejoice because you have saved me. And even if everything in this life goes haywire and I end up going straight to heaven today by way of the grave, then I know that I've been rescued. And so, therefore, I choose to sing to you, God, because you are good to me even when the, when the world around me is being evil. So the first thing we can do to cope is to cry out to God in our frustration and hopelessness. Second thing we can do is to focus on the scriptural truth that even in severe trials, God is still working. We know this verse, one of our favorite verses, Romans 8, 28. And we know that God causes everything to work together for the good. By the way, this is a very good translation of this because it's not that... Everything is working for our good. It's that God takes what other people mean for evil and he causes it to, to bring good. That's what happened with Joseph. His brothers intended for it evil toward him and God intended a higher purpose through them selling him into slavery. He says, and we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. When, when, when tragedy st strikes, God is already at work working to bring good out of devastating circumstances. And that doesn't mean that it's going to be, the, the good is not necessarily that he's going to fix it. But in the midst of that, because with Joseph, he went through it for years. But eventually God's going to keep his promise. And, and I'm not saying, don't misunderstand me, I'm not saying that God causes all tragedy, but I am saying, in the midst of every tragedy, God is working for your good. Hudson Taylor, he's a missionary to China. Uh, old, he's been gone for many years now. He actually, there's a book about his life called Hudson Taylor's Spiritual Secret. Everybody here ought to read that. It's so powerful. But this is what he said. Uh, he wrote this while under, while under intense pressure and difficulty. He wrote, it does not matter how great the pressure is. What really matters is where the pressure lies. 
whether it comes between you and God or whether it presses you nearer His heart. The third way to reach out to God in, in coping with tragedy and suffering and evil, and this is so powerful, do something to alleviate suffering when it is in your power to do it. You know what happens a lot of times when we're going through hard times and painful times, suffering when evil is going on around us? Very, very easy to become self-centered. Isn't it? It's very easy. Anybody here ever have a pity party? Am I the only one? Yeah. Yeah, I had it. I'll be honest. You know, marrying off my daughter, you know, I had a, maybe I had a pity party or two a couple times over the weekend, but, but uh, that was a minor one. But we, we're so easily, we easily get focused in on our problems, on our situation, wanting God to fix that. And when we do that, sometimes we completely miss that all around us, there are people going through things the same as or sometimes even worse than what we're going through. And one of the best things you can do to deal with your suffering is to look around and see where other people are suffering and find a way to serve them. That's one of the most powerful ways. You see, the job of the church is to impact our society with the gospel of Jesus Christ, making disciples of all nations. And we need to engage in the pain of the people around us and become involved in their lives, even though we may be hurting at the time, because as we serve and minister to other people, it opens the door for God to serve and minister us. And to accomplish the goal, the job of the church, here's what we forget. And, and the longer the longer you're a Christian, the more uh, likely you are to fall into this category. Because the longer you're a Christian, the the percentages are the fewer non-Christian friends you have. Which means that the longer I walk with Jesus, the more intentional I have to be about being around people who don't know Jesus. We have to be with people who need Jesus. And that means we may have to meet physical and emotional needs in order to open the door to meeting their spiritual needs. But here, here's what happens to a lot of us. We look around and we realize, man, there's so much suffering. There's so much pain around me. There's so much need. How can I make a difference? Anybody here ever felt overwhelmed when you looked around and you realized, man, you know, I mean, I got a little extra cash here, but I, I can't feed the city. And it's easy to get overwhelmed by all the, the massive uh, uh, magnitude of, of the needs around us and the pain and the suffering around us. But I heard somebody make a statement years and years ago that has stuck with me, and I want to pass it on to you because this is how you do it. Do for one what you wish you could do for all. Don't sit around and say, man, I, I wish I could just feed all the hungry people. Well, you can't do that. So find one hungry person and feed the one. Do for one what you wish you could do for all. And if we all do that, we're going to make an impact on the world. And instead of being paralyzed with the overwhelming need around us, we're going to begin to make a difference in the lives of people right there next to us as we do for one what we wish we could do for all. And the fourth way, it's very simple, that we can reach out to God in coping with tragedy and suffering and evil is simply to wait and trust. Wait and trust. That's not easy. Anybody here find it easy to wait and trust? Yeah, me neither. But sometimes, sometimes, that's all we have left to do. There's nothing else to do. Sometimes we have done everything that we can humanly do. And then all we can do is wait and trust God to do His amazing work. So this problem of evil can't be taken lightly. 
but it doesn't have to leave us in defeat and bitterness. We, we can take it with the understanding that our good and all-powerful God is also all-loving, that He has our best interest at heart when he, and that He sees the bigger picture. I, there's a story of a man flying his airplane. He's flying over a mountainous road. And Anybody here traveled on mountainous road? Maybe you're driving from here to West Plains, Missouri. Which is, which is a horror. I hate that drive because you get stuck on a two lane road and you get behind a semi that's going slow and you have all the curves and the hills and you can't see the, whether it's safe to pass, right? Well, this guy was flying his plane above a mountain, mountain road and he looked down and he saw this car that was trying to pass a semi truck. However, the man in the car could not see around the truck to pass because of all the dips and the curves and the hills and all these things. But the pilot from up above could see that there were no other vehicles on the, in the area and that the car would be in no danger in passing the truck. All he could do, though, was sit up there in the sky and reflect on the fact that from his vantage point, he could see what the man in the car could not see. He had a bigger picture of the situation. It's, the, it's exactly the same with God. God sees the big picture. You may be stuck behind a semi in your life, wondering, God, why am I not going anywhere? And God is up in heaven saying, I can see the big picture. I've got it mapped out. I know where I'm taking you. Just wait. Just be patient. Just trust me. You know, I don't have all the answers. And, and by the way, anybody that claims that they do, you need to run away as fast as you can. I don't have all the answers. But I do know the one who does. Even though sometimes those answers are beyond our comprehension. And I call on him to cope. And while he doesn't promise answers that will satisfy me, he does promise that he will be with me no matter what. And if you're trying to make sense of all the madness in, in, in our world on your own, which there's plenty of it, just watch the news. It's, we live in a mad world. But if you're trying to make sense of all the madness in the world on your own, then you've got an impossible task on your hands. You'll never make sense of it. But you know what? If you're trying to make sense of the madness in your world, then it's not only impossible, but it's also heartbreaking. So I invite you to press into Jesus. If you're in that place of suffering, just wait. Just trust Him. Cry out to Him. Tell Him what's really on your heart. You know, he already knows. There's nothing you're going to say to him that's going to shock him because he knows what's in your heart. And if you're dealing with pain and, you, and it's caused you and you're angry and you don't get it, talk to him about it. Talk to him about it. Let him, let him do what he can do. Let him give you the strength in your weakness. Let him give you peace that passes understanding. Let him do it. And, and also, if there's anyone, whether you're here or watching on the live stream, if there's anyone here that you don't know Jesus, then I, I invite you to, to begin a relationship with the very one who created the universe and who is, who has its ultimate good and your ultimate good at the center of his heart. And I say, call on Jesus to forgive you of your sins. Give your life to Christ and he'll be with you even in the most difficult days of your life. Would you bow your head? Close your eyes. Father, as we come into your presence, we know we live in a very evil world. There's so much suffering. There's so much evil around us. But God, we also realize that that's not your fault. We did that. We broke this world. Our human choices brought evil into this world and the suffering that follows. But God, the good news is you didn't leave us just to deal with our own, the consequences of our own actions. Jesus, that's why you came. You came to pay the, the penalty that our sin had, had earned. You took our death upon yourself. And in so doing, Lord God, you've made a way for us to escape from those consequences. But God, we know that there are many, many more who have not heard or not responded to this message. And God, in the midst of this evil world, first of all, God, we're, if there's anybody that's here that's suffering, God, I pray that they would cry out to you. 
And God, if there's anybody who doesn't know you, that they also would cry out to you, but in a different way. And Lord, that you teach us just to wait and to trust in your name. With heads bowed and eyes closed, and there's nobody looking around. I, I don't know where everybody is. But the first thing, the most important thing, I want to make sure that everybody here has the opportunity, or on the live stream as well, has the opportunity to surrender their life to Jesus. Maybe you're going through some really difficult things and you've grown angry and, and you thought God was doing something and He was out to get you, but now you know it's not true. He's trying to rescue you. And if you'd like to surrender your life to Christ, I, I invite you right where you are just to, to raise your hand to Him. If you're online, just type in the comment section, say pray for me, we'll, and we'll pray for you. Is there anybody? Take a moment. I want to make sure. Second thing is this. Maybe there's somebody here and say, Pastor Dave, I'm walking through some very difficult times, some pain, some suffering in my life. And I just, I just want to surrender it to Him. I want to stop trying to fix it. I want to learn to just wait and trust Him. If that's you today, I'd like to pray for you if that's you. So if that's, if that's where you find yourself, just slip your hand up right where you are. Yes, several places all over. Father, you see every hand. And God, not only do you see the hand, you see the circumstance. And there's not one of these situations, Lord God, that has caught you off guard. But you, 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 you knew about them before it ever started. And God, I pray that in Jesus' name, that those who raise their hand, I'm asking God that you would strengthen them with your strength, that you would give them the peace of God that passes all, under, all human understanding. And God, that in Jesus' name, they would just stand and wait and be patient and look to you and realize that no matter what the circumstances, that their eyes would be focused on the reality that you love them like no one else loves them and that you are at work doing things that maybe they will never even be able to fully understand in this lifetime. But you're at work and you're, you're bringing good into their life, even if it's the good of, of shaping us into the character of Christ. So Lord, I just pray you'd have your way in each of our lives. And God, help us when questions come up with friends, people we know around us. Help us, Lord God, to be ready to give an answer. But most of all, just to point them to Jesus. And Lord, we ask for your anointing as we leave this place. I pray, God, that you would go before us, that you would set up divine appointments, divine conversations, whereby we can tell somebody about Jesus. And we thank you for what you're doing, what you're going to do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.